Welcome to Mercy Hill Church. I am uh, the new lead pastor here. Almost maybe met most all of you by now. Uh, Some people on summer vacation, it looks like. That's where I was last week. A really good time. Thank you for letting me get away. I heard that Jerry uh, blessed you all by bringing the word. Um, But I got to officiate the wedding there for for my cousin in uh, Kentucky. All my family... A lot of friends. It was it was it was kind of a nerve-wracking experience, to be honest with you. But really, really neat. Um, I think God will use it to open doors, and got a lot of cool feedback from my family and stuff. You don't always get to preach the gospel to your family, so it was really cool. And then we got to go to the beach, uh, and my girls, man, they were they were taken to the waves there, South Carolina. Uh, a lot of warm, you know, warm water. Uh, a lot of fun stuff to do. So thanks for giving me uh, that time. Happy to be back with you. Some of you have asked me about the prayer meeting at my house. Originally, I had hoped to start it tonight. Um, and my girls are a little bit sick. And also there are some details to work out. So we opted, if it's okay with you guys, we will get that rolling next Sunday night. Um, still trying to figure out what the best time would be, and I'm trying to find someone potentially for childcare that might be interested in doing that. Um, so if you have any ideas or opinions on the matter, uh, feel free to let me know. We're also open, kind of wondering how often. You know, we're tossing around once a month, every other week, uh, even weekly. Although I, part of me is a little hesitant to go that route first, because I'm, I'm looking for this to be a long-term thing. We would be a church devoted to uh, seeking the Lord in prayer, that this really would be um, a house of prayer, a people of, of prayer. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing for you guys, just so you're aware, I've talked with Donnell about this, our sound guy. He's awesome, awesome man. Um, and we have really labored to try to make the MP3s and hand out other things available to you as soon as possible so that you can, you know, if you miss or if you're doing child care or, um, you know, children's church or if your, your home group's going through it and you want to, you want to, you know, look at some of the material again, it's going to be on, on the web, okay, uh, the week of. So I want you to know the MP3s are there, the handouts that you should have in your hands right now are there, and also if you go to the sermon section and you click on the actual title of the message itself, I actually post my manuscript, um, I couldn't figure out an easier way to do it, so you have to kind of click on the the sermon itself, the title, and it'll take you to something where there'll be a link for the manuscript. So if I go too fast, which I know I do, or if I cover too much, which often I do, or if I have references or other things that you kind of get lost in and you would like, it's all... It's It's all there uh, for the most part. Okay? We awake this morning? You guys good? Okay. All right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Let's give Donnell a hand. Sound guys, you only notice them when they mess up. We want to recognize them when they do good things, too. It has been in the iTunes feed uh, Monday morning, so thank you. I don't even know what that is. iTunes for podcasting. We have a podcast? Yes. We have a podcast. That's good. All right, so... I was actually going to look into that. I didn't know that. We need a link for that on the web. Um, All right. So we are, I should say, if you need a Bible, maybe the ushers could uh, bring Bibles. Does does anybody need a Bible here? We're big on on God's Word, obviously. And so uh, please uh, get a text to look at with me so you can study together with us. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that home. Um, for the rest of us, I, I have somewhat of a lengthy introduction here, uh, but some things on my heart that I think are important for this church. Part, part of this is actually a message I had prepared before um, for uh, and another occasion there in Philadelphia, but it's something I wanted to bring to us here this morning. Um, you know that last time, two weeks ago, I finished up our series, Christ in Him Crucified, um, and that means, obviously, we're transitioning into something else. What's on my heart might sound crazy, but what I desire to do in uh, the coming weeks is go through the Gospel of Luke with you guys. Um, there are a number of reasons why, which we'll, which we'll get into when we begin that series. I anticipate, knowing myself, that that will probably take us into the next decade, okay? <laughs> But it will be rich, I pray. It will be amazing. Luke is the biggest, it's the biggest book in the New Testament. Most verses 
uh, in, of any book in the New Testament. So I, I'm aware that this is a big thing. We might break it up, and I always feel the freedom to come in with a topical message or whatever here or there. So don't worry, we're not getting locked into something. Uh, but it will be, uh, I trust, amazing. But before we do that, I thought, you know, it's summertime of things. I thought it would be really cool to spend just, you know, three, maybe four weeks looking at some psalms. Um, because the Psalms are wonderful. You can kind of jump in and, and jump out. They're all connected, and yet you, they're kind of their own separate uh, entity. So uh, we're going to be doing that for the next few uh, weeks. Now, let me give you then a few um, kind of background words to the Psalms then. Um, first, the word Psalm. Anybody know what it means? There it is. Song comes from the, the Greek word salmas, which is a translation of the Hebrew word mizmor. Both of those words in English just mean song. So what we find, this kind of directs us to the historical reality that the Psalms, the Psalter, the book of Psalms, actually served for Israel as their hymn book, if you will, in congregational worship in particular. Pretty interesting. They were singing these. That's why in the beginning, as we'll see, you kind of you kind of notice these little directions to the choir master and other things. They're singing these in corporate worship. These are songs. And what you love about, what I love about the Psalms is the fact that they teach us, they help us not only to articulate our faith, but to feel it. I don't think in the canon you're going to get uh, you're going to get a more potent collision of both cognition and emotion, doctrine and doxology, faith and feeling. You see, it's in the Psalms that we realize, oh wow, our faith is more than just kind of the ascent, the mental, intellectual ascent to some creed. It actually should be engaging my heart. So, given these um, two things I mentioned here, Looking at the Psalms is kind of an ongoing series that we'll dip in and out of. If I were to put a, a, a name on this series, it would be as follows. Singing with the Psalmist. Learning to feel our faith. Ongoing sermon series. We'll dip in and out for years, I assume. But that will be kind of the, the title I would like to put over it all. Um, now, to get us into our text this morning, which is going to be Psalm 13, um, I have some things I want to say. In church, every Sunday, should be the case at least, we talk, we pray, we preach, we sing about the unending, unstoppable, unconditional, Love of God. This is what we should be doing. It's a wonderful thing. And we are blown away by the love that God has shown us at the cross of Christ. Amazed by it. And so we are fixated with it. We can't get over it. And all of this should be about that. But, I wonder if you have ever come in to a church service like this, gathered with His people, focused on His love, and gone, I know it, I know it, I know it. But I don't feel it. At times, we are this strange mixture of, I know He loves me, but does He really love me? I trust Him. But sometimes I doubt Him. If you've been following Christ very long, I think it's safe to assume that you know what I'm talking about. This is what Paul might refer to as the fight for faith. There's this tension between the flesh and the Spirit. Between what we see with our eyes in the world around us and what we see in His Word about who He is, what He's doing, what He's going to do. 
And there are times where we're just caught in the middle of that tension. And though we know it, we don't feel it. And we are fighting. We'll experience... Maybe you're in one of those places right now. I remember the beginning of my Christian walk. Just You'll experience these times of intimate nearness. We're just like, how could you doubt His love? How could you even doubt it? Look at Him. It's incredible. Look at what He's doing in my life. This is incredible. Times like that. And then you'll have seasons. I think it was the Puritans that referred to Him as the, the dark night of the soul. You have those seasons where, where did you go. What do we do? How do we respond to these sorts of experiences? When we're struggling, I know He loves me, but does He love me? I know it, but I don't feel it. I hate to say it, you've probably been the recipient of some of this, but sometimes the church actually hinders rather than helps at this point. It is hard enough that the children of God have to go through these sort of fierce trials on voyage to the heavenly shore. But then you add to that sometimes the the, the wrong responses of the church. Sometimes maybe rightly motivated, but wrongly informed. Here's what happens. Sometimes we can err as a church like Job's friends. You remember this? Job was clearly righteous. We're told that in the very beginning, and that's not the reason why these trials and all these things came on. But all his friends get together and say, something is wrong with you. If you're struggling, if you're suffering, it must be a result of some sin. You better look in and see Something's gone wrong with you. If, 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 if you are, you are not feeling like God is near, something's faulty with your faith. You better get it right and kind of draw this direct line from, from the suffering you're experiencing to your sinfulness. So that's why it's happening. So you get this right. And then you'll experience what everyone else in this room is experiencing. The joy of the Lord. <laughs> The church can often slap the wrist instead of sharing in the tears. Now, to be sure, sometimes that direct line can be drawn, okay? There are times where rebuke and call to repentance is necessary. I'm not saying that at all. There are times where our suffering is a result of our sin and our feeling of God's absence is because we're living in our own sin and unrepentant way. So that is true. But I I would say I don't even think that's the majority of the, of the time, the case. I think a lot of this is life in a fallen and flipped world like we looked at in the past weeks. This is life on this side of the new heavens and new earth where we are going to struggle. Now, even when the church doesn't draw such a direct line, even when the church comes in and says, I want to help, You're struggling. I want to help. Let's get this right. I realize you need something. Sometimes what can happen is we treat the people that are doubting. We treat the people that are in the dark night of the soul or dealing with depression or whatever it might be. We treat them, we wouldn't say it, but we treat them as kind of a nuisance or a bother. Okay, all right. Let's give them a quick fix. Let's get something so that they can kind of stop bothering everyone, being down, and we can get them back up. We treat them like a problem to quick fix rather than a person to to love and walk alongside and through. And here's what happens. I wonder if you've been the recipient of this kind of counsel. We can actually give out the Scripture, verses and things like that, almost like, Band-Aids rather than bullets. Stick with me here for a moment. Handing out the Scripture like 
band-aids would look like, hey, okay, all right, you're struggling with something. Look, God works all things out for good for those who are called according to his purpose and love him. Therefore, let's cover that little depression issue up and the doubting up and it should be out of sight, out of mind and better now. It doesn't get to the heart of the problem, just kind of this topical application and we're done. But you could be handed that same verse It would be like a bullet. A bullet. Rather than saying, cover it up and move on. It says, I'm coming in. Let's fight. This is war. You and I know it. Let's take up the sword of the Spirit. If there were guns in Paul's day, maybe the rifle of the Spirit, whatever. This is a bullet. Let's fight. Let's fight together in the fields of war. Have you ever been given the Scripture... Like a band-aid. Get better, get right, and then come back. Okay. You should be better by now. I gave you the verses on depression or on doubt. You should be better. Now, when suffering Christians find themselves in this kind of direct line, band-aid type church atmosphere, it's tragic. The result, the effect, is tragic. They're left really with only two options. Fake it. Here's the, here's the plastic kind of joy that you get in a lot of Christian churches. You got the big screens and the, and the ladies with their hair all done and the perfect crystal white teeth and they're singing their songs like, like they don't have a care in the world. And this is, this is the joy of the Lord and everybody should be feeling this. And so everyone out there says, okay, we gotta fake it until you make it, right? Here we go. We gotta start doing this. We're not gonna let anybody into our struggles because Christians don't struggle. You fake it. Or, when that doesn't work, you forsake it. After a while, you come to conclude, and this is the real tragedy, that the church and God and His Word doesn't have the answer to my deepest problems. When I come with the things I'm really struggling with, they either show me the door... Or they slap a verse on my chest and say, there you go, take a couple pills and you'll be better in the morning. And when you get that sort of thing, you get, this isn't the answer. There must be somewhere else to go with my problems. Meanwhile, the real option, not fake it, not forsake it, but fight for it, the real option is strangled out. Fighting for faith in the mysterious love of the Lord as we wait together for the full unveiling of His salvation. That's what the church is supposed to be doing. Coming alongside one another. Suffering with one another. What if such experiences of doubt and struggle are actually mentioned in the Scriptures? What if, not just mentioned in the Scriptures, this is actually biblical. What if this is a normal part of the Christian Life. What if the suffering and depressed, instead of being told to come back when they had the joy of the Lord, were actually told that the church's doors are open especially to them? What if they are presented with the Savior who was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and told that He knows what they're feeling, He knows what they're going through, and is ready and willing to walk through it. He's been victorious, and He's here. What if the church was seen more like an emergency room than a hall of fame? What if, 
every Sunday, we became accustomed to the reality that there would be both lifted up cries of praise and cries of pain. Sometimes from the same person. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's Paul's experience. Is it ours? What if this was normal? For the Christian life on this side of heaven. You're wondering, are we going to get into the Bible? Yeah, we are. The Psalter, the Psalms, the book of Psalms are gold at this point. Because we find that the psalmist, David or whoever, doesn't just sing Psalm 145s. Just praising the glory of this God. That's not the only ones you can find. In fact, if I remember correctly, the majority of psalms are more like Psalm 13's laments. The singing that we're doing while praising is also expressing our pain and our struggle. Some, like Psalm 88, don't even get to joy. It just ends in the darkness. They're helping us learn how to feel our faith. The joyful and the depressed find language for their worship here. Now you can turn to Psalm 13. And when you get there, I want you to notice the, the superscript. It's the little, the little uh, kind of... I don't know how you describe it. It's the message up on top. It's not the title that your translators give um, the text, but it's actually it's where it says, ours says this, to the choir master. Do you see that in the ESV? It might say choir director in another translation. To the choir master, a psalm of David. That's Psalm 13. That's the uh, superscript there. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Now stop there for a moment before we get in. We often neglect the superscripts. I mean, do you really read these or do you even realize that these are a part of the actual manuscripts we have of, of the Psalms? You just think that that's kind of what the ESV editors or whatever kind of put in? No, 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 no. Hold on, let me, let me make a couple notes here. One thing um, you need to know is that every manuscript, Greek and Hebrew, that we have, everyone in existence that we have, actually contains these superscripts. Okay? There's not a manuscript we have of the Psalms that doesn't have those superscripts. Secondly, in every one of these manuscripts, Greek and Hebrew, even Latin, I think, the superscripts are given a verse number. They're not just kind of put up at the top and kind of something we skim over and don't even realize is a part of the biblical text. They're put in the text. Okay? They're highlighted. They're seen as a part of the inspired Word of God. Now, there's debate on this, but gosh, at very least, we take it seriously. So, what does this mean? What does this mean? When you read to the choir master, what does it mean? It means that this psalm wasn't just kind of meant for private prayer and reflection. It wasn't just something that David was going through and then that's it. We all can't relate to this. It means it was meant for public worship. Like I mentioned at the beginning, this just becomes clearer. To the choir, we're going to sing this together. This psalm was meant to be used in shaping our worship of Him, to teach us how to feel our faith and what this means as we get into the content of this psalm. How to blow you away. What this means is that God is not afraid of our questions, our doubts, our struggles, but He is ready and willing to walk with us through them. He put this in the Psalter. This is a part of the canon. He wants us to sing this to Him. Get ready.
Psalm 13. Let me read it and pray. How long, oh Lord, oh, look at me. You see that? I skipped the superscript. That's not good. (laughs) To the choir master, a psalm or song of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. God, I pray in all my introductory words that I didn't lead us astray, but it led us right into what you're after in this text. I want us to sing this psalm together as a church. I want us to walk through this together. And Jesus, we know you sang it. We know you lived it. And we know you're here. And we know you go after the struggling, after the hurting. And I'm praying, God, Christ, pursue them in this room right now. And even those in our fellowship that aren't here, pursue them. I'm praying, Jesus, that walls that have been up for years would come down. And that the church wouldn't just slap band-aids on them, but would embrace them and fight with them. God, would you meet us here? We need you to speak to us through this text. Help us to hear your word and to be healed. To move from pain to joy and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This text gives us permission to be human. It gives us permission to feel. Permission to be honest. But it doesn't say, hey, vent your frustrations. Let's all just tell God how much we think He's abandoned us. Not like the children of Israel in the wilderness. It's a difference. This tells us how to handle, what to do with those feelings. Where to go? It gives us permission to feel them. Helps us know what to do with them. This morning we're going to be looking at the psalm two verses at a time. We're going to follow David. From pain, verses 1 and 2. Through prayer, verses 3 and 4. To praise, verses 5 and 6. And my prayer is that we will move with Him not only intellectually, but especially emotionally. I'm praying God will help us not only know He loves us, but start to feel it afresh again here today. So, before we get into it, I want to look at the pain. I want to look at His pain, from pain, David's pain. And you got to ask, what was the occasion, even though here we're not given the occasion. Sometimes in the Psalms, you can see either in the superscript or in the content of the Psalm itself, what's going on in David's life that gives rise to the Psalm. We're not given that here, and you know what? It's helpful. That's what makes the Psalms so kind of universal in their application. As you can come in and relate, because it's not so particularized, you're like, oh, I've never been in that sort of context. Instead, what we are invited to do is to put our own particulars into the generalities. Does that make sense? Bring your story into this psalm. So in other words, what makes you say, how long? 
What is the pain in your life that gives rise to psalms like this? Is it an illness that you just don't understand why God won't take it away? What's His purpose in it? How long? Is it a loved one that you've lost recently or maybe even a long time ago that you still can't get over? How long until Jesus comes and makes this right? And maybe it's a relationship broken and riddled with miscommunication and pain. How long, Lord, are you not listening to me? Why do I have to go through this? Or maybe it's the lack of relationship. I'm so lonely. How long? Whatever it is, we're invited to meet David in this place, in this psalm, and sing with him together. What's David's pain? Let's look at the first two verses again. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? I mean, you hear it, right? You hear the pain. It doesn't, it doesn't require much expository work from me to see the pain in this text. Four times in two verses, the cry, how long? How long? How long? How long? How long? It shows up 18 times in the Psalms. Four times here. This is the most compact cluster of these cries, of this how long, almost re- objection or just scream up to heaven, which makes Psalm 13 the classic articulation of this question and of this struggle. But let me make note of something, something that you might not see. I think in those two little words, you sense the anguish, you sense the sorrow, you can sense the confusion. But I wonder, can you sense the faith? Do you see the faith of David in these two verses? I just want to note this in passing, because this is why the church ought not to slap the wrist but actually in many ways praise and encourage the people that are saying these sorts of things. There is such a thing as a faithful doubt. There is such a thing as a faithful doubt. We ought not to always polarize the two. Faith is not this monochromatic reality. It it has different shades. It has kind of a positive and a negative charge. It doesn't always have deep roots like an oak. Sometimes it's as small as a mustard seed and the wind seems to be ready to blow it away. We don't always come into the throne room of God's grace boldly. Sometimes we come like smoldering wicks like bruised reeds. And you know what? He will not cast you out for that. Why? Because you're still coming. How long, O Lord, is a conversation with the Lord? The one He thinks feels has abandoned Him. He's still pursuing. Though I doubt, I'm coming. There is such a thing as a faithful doubt. And perhaps the clearest illustration, if you remember that, that father in Mark 9 where his kid's demon-possessed and he's watching him throwing himself against the ground and foam coming out of his mouth and he's going, Jesus, if it's possible for you, can you get this demon out of here? And Jesus if it's possible? <laughs> Did you say, if it's possible? If you have faith, anything's possible with me. 
And then what does he say? I believe. Help me with my unbelief. (laughs) Side by side. Faith and doubt. I'm coming. I'm struggling. Let me ask you this. Do we have the faith to make it to the second, the third, and even the fourth? How long? I thought about this. You know, a lot of us don't experience Psalm 13 because we don't get past the first how long. We go, how long, O Lord? Still not showing up? I'm going somewhere else. I'm going to fix this myself. I'm going to take care of this with my bank account, new job, whatever it might be. I'm going to make the situation happen. Right? It requires a lot of faith to get to the, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long? That's a lot of faith. We bail out the first one sometimes, right? I'll get my comfort. I'll get my salvation from somewhere else. If you're not going to show up, David if he truly thought God had abandoned him, wouldn't still be talking to him. So, again, what is this pain that David's experiencing? I'm going to start going quickly through this. Um, If I were to try to help us understand the pain he's experiencing in these two verses, the clearest way maybe would be to call it like a three-dimensional kind of pain. Okay, There's this upper dimension to it, There's this internal, inner dimension to it, and there's an outer dimension to it. You see the upper dimension there in uh, verse 1 in particular. And you watch as, as he describes this, it increases in intensity. David says to God, he says to God, will you forget me forever? So in the upper dimension, he's saying, God, it feels like you have forgotten me. We think of forgotten almost as kind of like this passive thing, like, oops, I forgot, right? Like, okay, if I, if I get a hold of him again, if I can get in contact with him again, if I get his attention, he'll, he'll remember me. But it gets worse. It gets worse as you go on. Because then he says, not only will you forget me forever, but how long will you hide your face from me? Now we're getting active here on God's part. Not only forgetting, but feels like he's hiding. I mean, here you've got the situation, you could liken it to like a friend, where maybe uh, they forgot to call you, or you text them, they never texted back, and remember, you know how you go through in your mind, like, okay, I don't want to jump to conclusions, maybe cell phone, lost in translation somewhere up there, you know, blame Cisco, or I don't know, they don't do any AT&T or whatever, you know, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, I'm going to go over to, the, to his house, I'm going to knock on that door. I'm sure that when I get there, everything will be fine. Well, David goes over to the house of the Lord, knocking on the door now, and what does he hear? The deadbolt. Locking the door. What does he see? The curtains slamming closed. Right? It's as if God is kind of crouching behind. As David's praying, God's kind of crouching inside the inner room of the house. Like David's an unwanted visitor. I can't wait till he leaves. That's how David is feeling at this point. You might expect that from another man. You don't expect that from your God. Now bear in mind, this is how David is feeling. Doesn't mean that this is what God is doing, or this is who God is. But we will feel this at times. Now, there is an inner dimension as well. you got the upper dimension there with God feeling like he's abandoned him. The inner dimension now with David's pain. You see it there described in verse 2, the first part, taking counsel in his soul. How long must I take counsel in my soul? It's almost like he's saying, I'm trying to find the solution and I'm not finding it. And there's this inner turmoil to such a degree that he says, there is sorrow in my heart all the day. It just hurts inside. There's a hopelessness. God feels like He's abandoned him in the upper dimension. Inside, He's in turmoil. And of course, 
there at the last part of verse 2, you see that he feels overtaken in the outer dimension as well. The circumstances of life. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? You got what's going on in the world. You got what's happening there with God. And you're somewhere in the middle hurting. This is the kind of stuff that gives rise to how longs in Psalm 13. Right? So, where then do we turn? Now we're going to look at prayer. We've walked with David from pain. I'm going to get through prayer here now. Where do we turn? When we have the sort of stuff going on in our own lives, where do we go? When the enemy is approaching, when inside I feel like sorrow and death and anguish, when it feels like Yahweh isn't working. You go somewhere else? You don't want to go somewhere else. Psalm 52, verse 7. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. We contradict our end with our means when we seek refuge anywhere else than God. Maybe if I find that relationship, the pain will stop. Maybe if I change careers, I'll feel more significant inside. Whatever it is. We don't want to be like that. This is why the church has to come around people like this. Satan is ready with a thousand options. We want to do what David did. We want to go where David went. Verse 3. Notice that even after the fourth how long, he's still coming. Verse 3 and 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Though David has felt abandoned and forsaken by God, he knows he has nowhere else to run. It's like the disciples with Christ. Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Even if we don't get it or don't like what you're doing, there's no other option. And that's David here in verses 3 and 4. He moves towards God in prayer. He doesn't shrink back and say, let's go somewhere else. He redoubles his efforts and says, I'm going to keep coming and keep knocking until you hear, because you are the only Savior. There is no other strong tower, refuge, fortress, Rock. Think of all these words that David uses in the Psalms to describe his God. There is no other. David knows that, and so he keeps coming. You remember, perhaps, Isaiah 62 7 says this Give God no rest until, in that context, it was he establishes Jerusalem. But in our context, until he fulfills his good word for us, whatever it may be, give him no rest. I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. You are going to answer me, God. For David, how long never becomes too long. Now, then it happens. We'll move into praise here. Verses 5 and 6. It says this, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. The transition from verse 4 to 5 in this psalm. 
is what every single person in this room and every single person in this city, every single person in this world is after. How do I get from sorrow and pain to joy? How does David get from a heart filled with sorrow all the day, verse 2, to a heart that is rejoicing, verse 5? His pain is given way to praise. But how? I want to follow Him there. How does this happen? Now, quick side note, lest I undermine what I'm trying to do and what I said at the beginning of, 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 of this uh, sermon. We don't know how long it took for David to get from verse 4 to verse 5. When we make that, that grave error again, if we assume we read the psalm and by the end of it, the person that was struggling is now where David was at verse 5 and 6. We don't know how long. We're not told. It took Job 35 chapters to get from pain to, okay, now I know he's God. We're not given a quick fix in this psalm, okay? What we are given is a road map. We're not told how long it'll take to get there, but we're told where we are to travel. From pain, through prayer, 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 together, prayer, singing, prayer, to praise. And it seems, if you look closely, though, that all of this hinges on one word. And our, our understanding, our trusting in, one word in particular. Steadfast love. Did I hear it? Did somebody say that? <laughs> Good job. Two words in the English, one word in the Hebrew. Chesed. It's a word that they struggle even... Why do we translate this into English? We can't capture it in English. The word shows up in covenantal context with God as He's, as he's speaking and making covenant with the patriarchs, with Moses. Remember the Lord, the Lord, a God steadfast in love, or whatever, I can't remember. Abounding in steadfast love, there it is. To Moses. Later He promises it to David and to his offspring. It is wrapped up in the covenant. So, some people identify it as God's unrelenting covenant love. That's the steadfast love that David is focusing in on. That David says, but I have trusted in this. God's unrelenting covenant love. This love is the central feature of His name, His promise, and His activity. And David fixates in on that. It is not a mere attribute of God, but it's actually part of His covenant, part of His promise to David. I will be with you. I will uphold you. I will keep you. I will have everlasting love for you. And here's what we see. Even before circumstances change, it would seem if you do a close analysis of the, of the tenses in verses 5 and 6, even before circumstances change, joy starts to erupt in David's heart. By faith in God's covenant made in the past, he anticipates the salvation of the Lord for him in the future. And therefore, joy erupts from his heart in the present. Think with me about this. Give you an image for this. The north star of God's covenant love is fixed. Even when the constellations of earthly circumstances are moving and shifting and orbiting around. His love remains the same even when the fog gets in the way and we don't know which way is up or down or true north 
It's still there. And David fixates on that. He goes there to God's covenant with him. And he said, whatever's happening in circumstance, I remember covenant. And he fights for faith. Samuel Rutherford wrote from the belly of his prison cell. Note that. 400 years ago. Your heart, speaking of God, or I'm sorry, speaking of us, your heart is not the compass Christ sails by. Your thoughts are no parts of the new covenant. Dreams do not change Christ. In other words, whatever you feel, whatever your heart is saying or the anguish that's there, Christ doesn't sail by that. He has His own plan. He keeps on true north and He can be trusted. No matter what you feel in the belly of your prison cell, He has not abandoned you. Hold on. Hold on. We're going to end with a final question. Everything in the psalm hinges on this steadfast love. Everything hinges here. But there is another question that we need to ask. How did David become the recipient of God's steadfast love? How did he even get into covenant with this God? He himself being a very significant sinner, if you know his story. Deserving of death. The guy broke almost all the commandments in one one movement. (laughs) So while the question on the surface of our text that, that, that shines bright is how long, how long, how long, how long, the question underneath that we all ought to be asking is how love? If everything hinges on this love, how do I get this love? The psalm should have just dropped out beneath our feet after verse 4. We deserve the enemies. We deserve the turmoil. We deserve the pain. How do we get to praise and joy via this love? How love? And we know the answer, of course, is, is Jesus Christ. I mean, there's a verse in, uh, in Luke 1, 72. It says that upon Jesus' coming into the world, this is what was happening. <laughs> he was coming to show the mercy, the mercy promised to the fathers and to remember His holy covenant. <laughs> Quick words hold on with me this is really cool the word mercy there in the Greek is the word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for steadfast love okay hesed I just want you to know that the word mercy there he came to fulfill the mercy he came he came to show secure seal the steadfast love the unrelenting covenant love of God for his people he is that love incarnate So, the steadfast love of God is not merely an attribute, a word or a promise, or an action or activity. In its most climactic expression, it is a person that we see God's commitment, we see His unrelenting love, how far He is going to go to show us He will turn our sorrow into joy, even if the morning takes a long time to get here. He came to show that love. And greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. We deserve that psalm to drop out. Verse 4. He takes that. 
He goes to the cross with that. And gives us another story. Gives us verses 5 and 6. God's anger, His wrath needed to be propitiated. So that we could have the praise and the joy. I mean, note with me, Jesus lived this psalm. He fulfilled this psalm. When you think of pain, prayer, and praise, think of this with me. He experienced the anguish of the Father's forsaking. Why have you forsaken me, right? Where are you? What's going on? Inside, as the cross was looming, you remember what he says? He knew the soul's sorrow, even unto death he was troubled inside. My soul, he says. The inner dimension. He knew the outer dimension. The enemies came and the demons were laughing. Men put him to death. But he didn't give up. He didn't go to another Savior. He didn't call down legions of angels. He got down on his knees three times. Can this cup be removed three times? Can this cup be removed? Is there any other way? And when there wasn't, he got up and he went to it. And he trusted the Father to death. And the Father raised him up from the dead for us. This is what it says in Zechariah 13.1. It says that, that it's as if when he burst forth from the grave, there was a fountain opened for the house of David to cleanse them from their sin. This fountain was opened in light of the promises to David in Christ's resurrection washing us from our sin. It flows back to David so he can enjoy verses 5 and 6. It flows forward to us from the cross so that we can enjoy verses 5 and 6 as we trust in Him. And Christ now, by the Spirit, by the power of His resurrection Spirit, walks with us through pain, prayer to praise he walks this road with us and that's why as a church I want to walk it together closing exhortation let's sing this psalm together where are you at are there how longs in your life right now Don't go anywhere else. Go to Christ, but let's go to Him together. In fact, as we close, can I do something? Might be crazy. I don't know if you did this before, whatever, but um, time. Okay. Let me. I'd like this to be the closing prayer. If any of you are in this place, you're in verses one and two. You're in verses 3 and 4. You're struggling to trust in the Savior and what He's done. You don't see how this situation, whatever it is, is going to work out. I would love for you to raise your hand for a moment. We can, we can lay hands and I'll just pray specifically for you guys. There is power in coming to God together. To the choir master. <laughs> we sing this. And so I would, lo- I would love it if, if you're in that, in that place. I would love to have the people around you lay hands and, and, I'll, and I'll pray. Is there anybody at all um, there? Guys, if there, are, if there are hands being raised, if I could ask other people to come and just lay hands. And anybody else? So just if there's someone around you, I want to live this psalm. We want to walk with with you together through it. I know I'm going a little bit over here, so forgive me. All right. Um, Let's pray, and maybe after this we'll have, uh, have Patty come on up. Jesus, we are a family. We're walking this road together. 
And sometimes we get stuck in in verse 2. Sometimes we have enough faith to get to verses 3 and 4. And sometimes we just can't seem to break into verses 5 and 6. And we're praying, God. We're praying that you would manifest your steadfast love afresh to these individuals. You know what they're going through. You've lived this psalm, you've fulfilled this psalm, and you're present with them to walk them through it now. I pray, Jesus, that they would know they are not rejected for the doubts, not rejected for their struggles, but invited. And we pray that we would see your great salvation come. Even if it takes days, months, years. God, we pray that you would allow them, by faith in your covenant, to experience something of that sorrow mixed with joy even now. Because of your great love. I thank you for the humility in in coming forward in this way. We pray, Jesus, your special blessing upon them. And for us, Lord, would you protect us from going anywhere else? Would we make it to the fourth how long and beyond, trusting you even through death? It's in your name that we pray and we now sing. Amen.